Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are in the book of 2 Timothy. We went through the summer, we preached 10 psalms, and then we'll get back to Galatians. We've been in a series of sermons on Galatians, but typically in the fall I preach a few sermons about who we are as a church, where we're going, trying to either explain to you why we do the way we things we do, or challenge us on areas that aren't what they should be, that are weaker. Last week we did that on prayer. I want us to be known as a church who does stand for truth, but also a church that seeks humbly God's help in everything in prayer. And today I want us to consider our witness, how we can increase, by God's grace, our witness in the community, so evangelism. And in order to do that, I want to give you, in Scripture, in this verse, which may seem weird, some background to what I think evangelism should look like in a local church and then specifically how it works in your life. So that's the challenge for you. How can you love those who are perishing without Christ? How can you be more useful to them? How can we as a church continue to grow in that? And that's not to say we don't have that happening here. But I think it is to say that it's an area that hasn't gotten as much attention as others. And so how can we do better at it? So I'm going to read. We're going to look mainly at 1 Timothy 4, 5. But that you can have a little more context. We'll start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, and read till 4 5. All right, this is God's word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's ask God's help. Father in heaven who saves... Please remember your promises to us, your servants, for they are our only hope and comfort in the world. Your promises are our life. Strengthen us as we look at the wickedness of the world around us 
that we might have faith not just to seclude ourselves from it, to protect ourselves from it, but to have the faith to witness to them with prayer, with the differences of our lives, out of love for those who are perishing. So may your word, your law, your promises be our song as we await the coming of your Son. Amen. We have in the New Testament letters written by apostles to churches addressing doctrinal issues, life issues, calling them to repentance and faith in biblical truth. Some of those letters, though, were written not to entire churches, but to individuals. This is one such letter. And even of those three letters written to individuals, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, this one is written from a pastor, the Apostle Paul, to a pastor, Timothy, and it's very, very personal. He is writing as, if I would have kept reading, he, his end is near. He's going to be martyred for the faith, and this is written to his most close friend in the ministry, Timothy, charging him to keep the main things the main things in his ministry. And this is for the sake of the church. In First Peter 5, the pastor and the elders are to shepherd the flock, and one of the ways that we are to shepherd you is by being examples to you. And so Paul writes these very intimate, personal words to a pastor in order that he might be examples to the flock. And the context of this is suffering. Look again at chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And just before that, Paul gives examples of his sufferings. And so he's charging the pastor for the sake of the church to remain faithful to the main things that God has called them to do in caring for his church, particularly in the light of the sufferings that will come for being a godly pastor, to being a godly Christian. Because, as you know, if somebody sticks a knife and it's sharp and it hurts, you give way, right? Similarly, if you're a Christian and your Christianity is causing you pain, the temptation is to back off, to yield to it. Again, if your shoulder is hurting you, you stop using it so much, you protect it. This is a temptation we have as Christians. If we're going to live godly and we're going to have friends and family and coworkers in a world who doesn't like some of the things that you as a Christian have to stand for and do, the temptation will be to yield. And so Paul charges Timothy very strongly. Look at verse 4-1. I charge you. This is an oath. This is a solid presence of Christ. Ordination charge in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, who will judge you. Don't yield. Don't back off. Focus on the main things that are supposed to be the main things in your ministry. And, of course, the main work of the church, the main work of the pastor is, what is it? It's preaching. Preach the word. 
If Timothy or any pastor or any church wants to be found faithful when they stand before our king that we've sung about, the main thing they have to do is be faithful in the preaching of the word. So you think about the vision of our church. Who are we? What are we supposed to be before God? We're supposed to give ourselves to the preaching and to the hearing of God's word with faith. That's the main thing, brothers and sisters. And so the main thing that we'll be tempted to neglect or to think less of is that. Preach the word. In season and out of season. When it's going well and when it isn't. When it's being received well and when it isn't. And a particular kind of preaching. I've probably preached on this passage many times, but we have to continue to remind ourselves the kind of preaching that will be found faithful is the kind of preaching in verse 2 that reproves, rebukes, and exhorts with patience with care, tenderly. That is to say, the kind of preaching that God has designed for the church that will be the most benefit to their souls is the kind of preaching that pricks the conscience, that knows you well enough to know where your sins lie and addresses them, rebukes them with patience. And so this should be the dominant vision of our local church. I was reading this morning of a pastor in England in the 1600s, Thomas Doolittle. What was happening in England at his time is Catholicism had been kind of run out and Protestantism under the Church of England had become dominant. Well, the Church of England quickly was corrupted. And so there were many pastors who were dissenting from the state church. And if they were to preach without being licensed, they could be removed from the church, and so all of their income and everything would be gone. And Thomas Doolittle was one such pastor in London. He had three children. The fourth was on the way, and he started a nonconformist church that refused to do what the Church of England wanted. And he was ejected. You know how many more kids he had after that? Five. (laughs) What a bunch of wimps we are in our day. I can't have more kids. But that's the kind of preaching we should have that risks. Great. That's the kind of vision we should have as the church. So the main part of our vision of a church is nothing new. We're going to preach the word. It is the main way that you are sanctified and God's work of salvation continues in your life. And it is often the thing that Christians think is least important in their lives. Right? So don't be ashamed of the preaching of God's word. Don't be ashamed of the preaching of the truths of God's word, the particular that are unsavory and distasteful in our world. Don't be ashamed of your pastors and their willingness to preach, not against just the sins out there, but the sins in here. And so you notice here that the pastor is to preach the word, and in verse 3, it will often be met with people who don't like it. And Paul has to charge Timothy to not listen to that. Because the reality is, just as much as the preaching shapes you, you shape the preaching. Did you know that? You have a massive impact on the freedom of the pastor to preach. 
I don't know if you know this, but I have a wife and children, and I depend on you to help me care for them. And if what I'm preaching is distasteful for you, the first place that we'll notice it is in your giving. And so the temptation will be for me not to preach what is distasteful to you so I can continue to care for my family and so on, right? That's how it works. Did you know that? It's that earthy. And so take care to hear God's word with faith. You impact our ability and freedom to preach the word truly. I I say that by way of a reminder. We as pastors honestly would say that you guys are a delight to preach to and we feel a lot of freedom to declare God's word as it stands and that you encourage us, so keep that up. Okay, so the main vision of each local church should be the preaching of God's word. That's the first thing, but it's not the only thing. And so in verse 5, we have these other charges. Some have to do with just his attitude in the ministry. Be sober-minded, endure suffering. It's always going to be part of being a Christian. Don't get so bent out of shape. Don't be so easily awed by the new ministry shiny thing. Just endure Keep doing the same thing faithfully, day in and day out, plot along. But then he has this, do the work of an evangelist. Now, in order to get at what is going on, and also by way of reminder about the vision of our church, we have to talk about church governance. Isn't that exciting? Church governance. What what do you think I mean when I say church governance? Or if I were to say to you, what we're getting at here when he says, do the work of an evangelist, is this is an office in the church. This is a, an official ordained position. It has to do with the structure that God gives us in his word concerning the, the, the leadership, the different positions that God has given to lead the church. So what I want to do to, for you is set in place what God has given the church to provide for its Leadership, it's care, it's discipline, it's purity, and then show you how this evangelist fits into it. And hopefully at the end, call you to engaging in this good work of bringing the gospel, calling sinners to repentance. So I have to give you a brief overview of the, the structure of governance. So, so uh, governance of the church. So in our country, our forefathers created a certain kind of government, a republic with different offices, right? Kids, what are the three branches of government? Do you know? Anybody? Yeah, judicial, legislative, executive, right? And, and there's different offices in there. If the office of the president Office of Senators and Representatives and Judges. Another way to look at them is those are kind of like the, the fathers of our nation, given to guide us and lead us and protect our rights and discipline our errors and so on. Just likewise, God has provided for government and offices and church fathers. 
what are the offices in a local church? Well, you have pastor, elders, deacons. Right? And then we would also say kind of the, the godly fathers and mothers who do the bulk of the work of the ministry under those kind of offices. Like the work of the ministry belongs to the church, to you. You guys do this very well as a church, praise God. You take care of each other. You go to those in need and are used by God to help them spiritually and physically. But kind of leading the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. What I want to do is show you those in Ephesians 4. So would you turn back a few books to the left to the book of Ephesians what I've just described is described here in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Here we have some of, the, some of these offices mentioned. And he, that is the resurrected, ascended Savior, Lord over all things, he gave to the church, is he talking here. He gave to us these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors, elders would be included there, and teachers. For what purpose? To equip you, the saints, the church fathers and mothers, you, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So there is a structure, a hierarchy, a governance in the local church, Christ is Lord. He's the, the king. He has given various offices to equip you to help each other become more like Christ. So you have these offices. Two of the offices here, apostles and prophets, are complete. There are no more of them. There will be no more because God's word is complete. Two of the other offices, pastors or shepherds here, and teachers we still have. They continue to care for the church, bringing the prophetic apostolic word, the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures, functioning under Christ, under the prophets and the apostles, to care for the church. So these are your pastors, elders, and it doesn't mention Dickens explicitly here, but they would have been included. But then you have this other office here mentioned that we have heard very little of, and so maybe don't know what to do with this one in the middle. Evangelist. What's that? What's that? All right, so we've been mentioning this Sunday school class starting on Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read it? Okay, a good number of you. Do you remember the name given by Baxter to the man who comes to Christian when he's yet in the city of destruction telling him to flee. Anybody remember that guy's name? And he shows up in the book here and again when Christian is in real trouble and rebukes him and points him back to the narrow, straight way. Evangelist. And so it was common at one time in the church, as Baxter is putting in this book, that, or Bunyan, I'm sorry, that... Uh, there was this office that the church had of evangelist. And so what I want to do is take a few moments to show you that in Scripture. 
This term evangelist is only used in three places in the Bible. We've already seen two of them. 2 Timothy 4.5, Ephesians 4.11, and the other is Acts 21.8, which you turn there with me. So we're continuing to go to the left. We're getting more progressive. Don't worry, we'll come back to the right. All right. On the next day, we departed... So this is Paul and those who are serving with him to plant churches by preaching the gospel. And the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Okay. Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. You remember that guy? All right, kids, here you go. Back in Acts chapter 6, the office of deacon was created. And this guy, Philip, was one of those. He's also an evangelist. Let's see what an evangelist does by looking at Philip, the other place he's mentioned the back, back to the left a little bit further in Acts chapter 8. Hopefully this will be somewhat familiar to you. So we have, we don't have a lot of explicit teaching on this office of evangelist, we have this example here in Acts chapter 8 of Philip, who is called an evangelist, the evangelist, this office in Acts 21.4, or in Acts 21.8. So here in, in Acts 8, we have a bunch of persecution in, in the first three verses that scatters the church. And in verse 4, it's noted, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip was one of those. Philip was the first one to go outside of Jewish circles and preach the gospel to a non-Jewish people in Samaria. In verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Verse 6, the crowds paid real attention. Unclean spirits were being cast out. Paralyzed and lame people were being healed. In verse 7, there was much joy in the city. And in verse 12, when they... And when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So there was a church established in Samaria by this man, Philip, who had been sent out from Jerusalem to preach the gospel. A new church was started. So think with me. What's the next thing that should happen when a new church is started by an evangelist? What, what's needed next? Pastors. Eventually elders and deacons. And look what happens next. Verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem, so there was only a local church at this point in Jerusalem. That church had sent out Philip to Samaria. He preached the gospel. The church was established. And the sending church sent pastors. They sent to them Peter and John in order to pastor the church and disciple it. Later, let's say... In the book of Titus, we'll see Paul telling Titus to go to these local churches that were started and appoint elders, appoint pastors and teachers to shepherd them. So that's what we're seeing here. And then what happens next? The next time we meet Philip is in verse 26. He is sent by an angel. I think this would have probably included the church. It's not clear, but he's sent to continue on this work of an evangelist, preaching gospel to plant churches. So he goes, continues south to Gaza, and we have this really sweet 
conversion of an Ethiopian. So again, Gentiles going out in the world to those who haven't heard and establishing the church. So this Ethiopian is converted. In verse 36, he's baptized. And in verse 39, Philip is whisked away. Verse 40, Philip is an Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So you see this division of labor, if you will. This is the fledgling church, the church in its infancy. And there was this office of an evangelist, a guy sent out to preach the gospel, going from an established church to places around that didn't yet have the gospel, didn't yet have a church, to proclaim Christ, to see converts come, to establish a church, and then pastors and elders and deacons would be following behind to mature the church and guide the church and care for the church while the evangelists continued on. That's what we're seeing here. So this brings us back to 2 Timothy 4.5. So head back there. Timothy is a pastor. He is pastoring a local church that an evangelist like Paul or Philip had started. He's given an office. He's ordained to this work of pastoring, shepherding, eldering, along with others, a local church. So he's an office holder. He's a, an established, ordained leader in the church. And he is charged by somebody with authority over him to not neglect the work of pastoring the church, particularly the preaching. But he's also told, you've got to do the work of an evangelist. He's not an evangelist. That's not his office. But pastors are to focus on their work of shepherding the church but not neglect the work of continuing to evangelize the lost around your local church. Ensure that the gospel is being proclaimed to the people around your local church that have not yet believed. That's part of the work. And so this was, it seems, a particular office sent out from local churches to be engaged in evangelism in their local area to establish new churches by the preaching of the gospel in order that the church could continue to be built. The kingdom of God could be expanded. But established local churches aren't exempt from, nor should they neglect, to continue to do the work of evangelism. Does everybody agree with that? I think so. I don't think I'm going to get much pushback there. So I'm not an evangelist. My primary work isn't out there, but in here. Our other pastors and elders aren't evangelists. Our primary work isn't out there, but in here. And yet we shouldn't neglect the work out there. We have to have an eye on that. We have to have prayer and thought and energy going towards the harvest that Christ has already established out there by going out and proclaiming the gospel. So let me connect that work of evangelism to what we do here on a Sunday morning and then to your lives. My contention, or what I want to say is, there, there is evangelism happening here. You guys probably know some people who are newer to the church, who have come to Christ, and whose lives are being rebuilt. 
There are some really glorious examples of that in the past few years, which we're very grateful for. There are some of you who faithfully invite others to our services. There are some of you who practice hospitality and do evangelistic work with your neighbors or coworkers or family members towards the aim of them coming to faith in Christ. So don't hear this as if the pastor is up here berating you for complete lack of evangelistic concern for the lost. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it isn't something that we focus on like we should. This is an area that I believe we need to do more in. But, and, and so how, that's the question. So let me say how we do that on our Sunday morning worship and how we might do that outside of our Sunday morning worship. The main work in here on a Sunday morning isn't evangelism, but it is your lives becoming more godly. One of the errors that the church has consistently made is to replace the work of sanctifying the saints with evangelism on a Sunday morning, and what always happens is doctrine is left to the wayside and nobody is built up in Christ. And so we will not do that. The work of the Sunday morning is you. Did you know that? Did you know that the work of Sunday morning isn't husband for your wife, but for you, the husband? And wife, it's not for your husband, but for you first? How many of you listen to the preaching of the word for somebody else? You do that? Oh, I wish that he would. Are you listening? So proud. You listen to it for yourself. That's the work on Sunday morning. But we do preach for the salvation of lost sinners. Every service, that's, we have that on our mind. And so bring family, friends, coworkers. God saves through the preaching of his word. Always. Read the book of Acts again. How are lost sinners saved in the book of Acts? Preaching of the gospel. Sometimes on just a Sunday morning worship service. In fact, the entirety of the worship service is evangelistic. It's evangelistic in a couple ways. As your lives become more godly and you go out and live in the world, people notice it. 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. That's what happens to you in a Sunday morning. Hopefully you're learning that Christ is holy and you should honor him more with your life. And then it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope is in you. So on Sunday morning, you're supposed to be becoming more holy incrementally over time. People notice it. Man, you're not such a jerk anymore. You work harder. I've noticed you're a better husband and you really respect your husband. What's happening to you? People should notice this. Unsaved family members who see you a couple times a year should notice change in your life. And hopefully, by God's grace, they want to ask about it. They're, they're curious. So that's evangelistic. Another is, in our love for each other, in John 17, Jesus says, that I may be in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that, that we might be unified in common love and care for each other. What for? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's evangelistic. Our love and care for each other. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, 
talking about the worship service, that if an unbeliever enters, he, he'll see what we're doing. I'm not going to get into all the details here, but he'll fall on his face and worship God and declare that God is really among you. So there's an evangelistic part of our worship service. Not the main thing, but it's definitely a thing. And again, I think this is something you do well. I, I was reading a very interesting article a couple weeks ago. I don't remember the exact details. It just comes to mind now where, you know, I think it's the first time in American history that there are more people not attending church than are attending church on a Sunday morning. And that's even more true if you limit the kind of church to an actual biblical church. And so it surveyed those who don't attend church. And one of the questions they asked is, would you attend church if you were invited by somebody who attended a church? Over 85% said they would come to church if they were invited by somebody who went to church. And that's something. So there you go. Keep at it. So Sunday morning is evangelistic. It's not the main thing, but it's, a, it's definitely a, a very important aspect of it. So pray towards that. But what about our lives? What about us as pastors? Again, 2 Timothy 4, 5 is directed primarily to us, pastors. So pastors, elders, we are to be engaged in doing the work of an evangelist. You guys should be holding us accountable to that. You should lovingly remind us that we do need to get out there, maybe asking at the annual meeting, praying that for us. But what about you? How can you be engaged in the work of seeing others saved, others turning from death and hell and under the dominion of Satan to life and forgiveness and part of the kingdom of God? Isn't that wonderful? You know that God uses smucks like you to do that? Just you. Just people. Christians with your lives. That's who God uses. In your sufferings particularly, did you know that? Some of you are going through some real, real deep, difficult stuff. Painful. You're full of anxiety and fear of where this is going. And don't neglect that it is often a prime opportunity for you to bear up underneath it, getting help from the church, struggling through with faith in Christ, and that that's very evangelistic to those watching. And it's often a time where People will not buck against you telling them about Christ as if they would other times because you're sick. (laughs) What are they going to say to you? (laughs) So take advantage of it. Be prayerful for that in your suffering. It's a good purpose God is giving you the suffering for. I'm not saying you have to be all joyful and happy, slappy. That's not the point. You're suffering, so suffer. But suffer for Christ's sake. Suffer with hope in him, at least some. Tell others the reason. Tell them about your church and the help you're getting. Right, so how else can you be evangelistic? Or how, if, as I'm thinking about it, do the work of an evangelist, Jeremy. How am I supposed to do it? And I think this is real overplay. I've already said one, but let me just say it again. The main charge to the pastor is to preach the word, which means the main charge to you as a Christian is to be attentive to the preaching of the word to become more like Jesus. So focus on becoming more like Jesus. For the sake of evangelism. The, I said this last week, and I want to say it again. We have way too many Christians who don't care to be born Christian. Don't be like that. Focus on your godliness. Second, I've said it, but let me say it again. Invite. 
This isn't the main thing in evangelism, but it's a, a tool God has given you is the gathering of the local church, whether it's to your neighborhood small group, to our annual picnic, to other events. Invite people who are apart from Christ to come and be around the people who love Christ. Now, this could be Sunday morning too. Invite them. Another thing you might do, well, I want to say pray. I'll put that to the end, but use your neighborhood small group. I think small groups are very effective evangelistically because it's such a more intimate, smaller setting, more relational. They can, they can establish relationships with Christians. They can see and hear the gospel being lived. And so maybe ask your neighborhood small group how you could be intentionally evangelistic. Be that person in your group. Another idea is take advantage of the major holidays. This is still a gift that God has given us as a nation. We still celebrate Christmas. We still celebrate Good Friday and Easter. We still celebrate Halloween. That'll really tick you off, won't it? You can use these opportunities where everybody is listening to Christian songs in every store they go into. They're usually more open to going to church around Christmas than Easter. Use those. You could hand out tracks at the major holidays to people that you love and ask to talk to them about it. One that I think I want to see how we can do this as a church, we're talking about this as pastors, is the church, as we see in the Bible, particularly this office of evangelists, is they would go out into the public and preach. I think this is something we need to engage in it as a church. I was reading on, uh, of a local church in a small rural area like ours, and once a month, they go to their super Walmart and preach the gospel publicly. And a bunch of people from church gather, and they pray for it, and they're available to talk to people, and somebody's there preaching. Of course, you've seen that kind of thing at places where unborn children are murdered. You've seen it at June Pride Month. We need a public witness to it. So I think, let's be praying for that. And who knows what other ideas you could come up with, Right? But it does begin with prayer. But prayer can't be all. How many of you pray for things just to say that you could pray for them, but you never do anything about it? You like that? I do that. So we are to be engaged, even though our main focus here is on building you up in Christ, to going out and witnessing in our community. And so this is preached in the hopes that we can continue to progress in doing that more to God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for those in our own lives that you used to bring us to faith, whether it was our parents and family and the church we were raised in or people in our dorm rooms or friends, various connections, the workplace. We praise you for this. Help us to be useful likewise. Give us faith to see, or faith to live our lives, to make an impact for those who have yet to believe. And so make use of us, God. Give us opportunities for this. Help us to do it wisely and patiently, but also with boldness and out of a sincere love. And so, God, may you be pleased to add to our number daily those being saved. And for the other churches in our town that hold to your word, would you bring a season of harvest? Uh, May it be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.